Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, March 13th, 2018. All right, you, you you gotta go see the dumpster fires. What the what? That's right. We uh, have a YouTube channel that we've been filling with content since the beginning of the year. When we launched Pirate Productions, we're up to eight installments now of our dumpster fire, and that's only one part of what we're offering there. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word, to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, doctrine is teaching, that is put out for consumption by Christians is just far. I <laughs> mean, just way off the mark, far from what God's word says. So many people aren't even trying anymore. And the absurdity is reaching delusional heights that uh, I couldn't have even predicted. I mean, literally. Ten years ago, we are up almost on our 10-year anniversary for Fighting for the Faith. And uh, ten years ago when we launched Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith, I mean, pastors still actually tried to make some effort to make it appear that they were, you know, actually teaching God's Word. And most people don't even try anymore. It's They they found out that no one's going to call them out on it except for, like, you know, you know pirate wingnuts like me. And... Uh, and a few others, but we're just cranky. That's all. Yeah, that's right. We're just cranky and haters and stuff like that. That's what they say. And uh, but no, we're, I'm not. And uh, they really are deceiving people. They are deceived. And although we try to have some fun along the way with the program, the ultimately fighting for the faith is a teaching ministry designed to help protect you, protect you from those people who would deceive you, make merchandise of you, teach for shameful gain, things that they ought not to teach, stuff of that nature. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And no joke, I mean, even as 
I'm doing my intro into the program today, I'm looking at my program notes going, you know, I don't know if I want to do that. I've, I've been sitting on um, – the, the, the best way I can put it is, is that there's one segment uh, for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith that I keep – Sitting there going, am I going to put that in or am I going to take it out? Am I going to put it in or am I going to take it out? And I don't even – I've decided I'm going to switch things up even from my own notes. So hopefully it will work out and we'll land on our feet and then hopefully the theme will work out properly as well. But uh, what we're going to do is we are going to start with a um, – Terry Savelle Foy update, and uh, that requires us to play our Barbie Girl song. But what we're going to do is we're going to listen to a segment from her uh, YouTube uh, program and just kind of ask the question, um, does household cleaning and doing household chores earn you a promotion with God? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I know you're sitting there going, no. She's not, and yeah, actually, um, that's kind of the weird thing is uh, she is. So uh, <laughs> we're so, we will start there. Um, it'll <laughs> well, we're going to try to keep it from plunging into the uh, the the depths of the of uh, of delusion today. But uh, just so you know, our first question up is doing housework, cleaning, and stuff like this. That 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 position you to earn. A, um, a promotion from God. Um, then we're going to head over to Real Talk Kim's uh, YouTube channel. And uh, she recently did a sermon and, uh, and didn't say it ironically. The title of the sermon is Exposing Counterfeits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let that irony sink in there for a bit. Somewhere in there we're going to take a break. And uh, then we're going to listen to a little bit of Mark Beeson. Mark Beeson of a Granger Community Church out there in uh, in northern part of Indiana. And uh, we're going to listen to him explain purpose-driven methodology, common purpose-driven methodology from a sermon he just delivered, which I thought was quite fascinating. Actually, he introed it, and then he turned it over to a researcher. And uh, to end the hour, we're going to listen to uh, uh, an extended segment from Jensen Franklin on what to do in times of famine. And the Jensen Franklin uh, segment will be a a great opportunity if you're not familiar with the concepts, the biblical concepts of law and gospel, grab a Bible and like open up to Romans chapter 3 in preparation. Because in order to understand what's going wrong with that Jensen Franklin segment, we're going to have to actually take a look at what Scripture teaches regarding the purpose of the law and the purpose of the gospel, and uh, note what Jensen Franklin is doing. Hour number two, no joke, you know, it's March Madness, um, you know, if you're into that. You know, qu- frankly, I've never really been into March Madness. I'm a baseball guy, so, you know, I'm counting down the days. You know, we just got a couple weeks left before... Uh, the baseball season is up and running, and all things will be right in the world, except for we still got snow on the ground here in North Dakota. And it's not a small amount. It's a lot of snow. We got a lot of snow still on the ground, so it doesn't even feel like 
it's spring anyway, but because uh, it's not up here. But anyway, so uh, March Madness is the basketball thing that goes on here in the United States. Uh, college basketball uh, tournament, uh, single elimination. People just go bonkers crazy. And we're going to listen to Bill Cornelius of Church Unlimited in Corpus Christi, Texas, which is a purpose-driven, seeker-driven church. And we're, you'll note that uh, this will you know, tie back into the Mark Beeson segment from hour number one. And um, the name of the sermon is uh, March Through Madness, Cinderella Story, and uh, classic, classic, complete missing of the point of the story of David and Goliath, which is, you know, a standard way in which people twist God's word. So uh, with that, let's uh, get into the program proper since we have a Terry Savelle Foy update on deck. First, let's do this. Hi, Bobby. That's right. Uh, I think I only use that music for one person, and that is Terry Savelle Foy. So we're heading over to uh, Terry Savelle Foy's YouTube channel, and uh, we're going to be listening to her from her program. Uh, and uh, in literally, the name of the this particular episode is "Prepared for Promotion," and I we're going to be asking the question: Is Terry Savelle Foy literally teaching that doing household chores and cleaning that God looks at you doing your chores and says, if you do a good job, then I will promote you. Yeah, the name of her program, by the way, is Live Your Dream. So this is the extended version. This is not her video blog. It's the actual TV program she produces and puts on YouTube. But uh, let's listen in as uh, she explains to us how we can be prepared for promotion. Hey, I'm Terry Savelle Foy, and you're watching Live Your Dreams. I pray that as you invest in yourself today, you're captivated and you're catapulted to live your dreams. Captivated and catapulted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> two, <laughs> two verbs when put together like that make me just a wee bit nervous. I want to share with you a story that I learned from my parents years ago that can absolutely change your life. All right. Now, notice the source of the story. That's kind of an important bit. So many of the false teachers out there, including Terry Savelle Foy, they get part of their doctrine from personal experiences or anecdotal stories from other people's lives or from testimonies and things like this. The idea is that as Christians, we only get our doctrine from clear texts of Scripture. Yeah, all doctrine has to come through the Word of God, and it has to actually be rightly understood in context. And then oftentimes, you know, you can see then how cross-references on the same topic will be saying the same thing but with different words. So yeah, we'll listen in as she gets some theology from a story she heard from her parents. Yeah. 
This was back in the early 1970s when my parents were just starting their journey of serving God, being in full-time ministry. You may know my parents, Jerry and Carolyn Savelle. Well, back then, my... Yeah, her father is really good friends with Kenneth Copeland. Dad was traveling nonstop with Kenneth Copeland. My mom stayed at home with my sister and me. We were really little. Now, back then, my parents had no money. They were trusting God to pay every bill. Now, the way they say it, they were living in a house that was in such bad shape. They said it was just about to be condemned, like bulldozed over. They were driving this old car with over 100,000 miles on it. And my mom was wearing cut-down maternity dresses from having me two years prior. Well, as they say it, they were living by faith. I mean, they were on a daily basis trusting God to provide. All right. So this is something that so many of us can, you know, um, well, relate to. You know, a portion of our life that may be in the past or may not be in the past where getting the two ends to meet financially, really difficult. And uh, and as a result of it, you can't afford new things used and hand-me-down and stuff that you buy at the Goodwill store, things like that. This is this is the only way you can survive, have enough money to put food on the table and pay all the bills and stuff. Yeah, we all get it. So, okay. Well, one typical day, my mom was just going about her normal chores, you know, of doing laundry, cooking, cleaning, taking care of two small babies. And she said, as she collected the clothing from the dryer, she said she just routinely did what she always did. She tossed all the clothes on the guest bedroom bed, guest room bed, and she said she would just pull something out when it was time to wear it. She'd pull it from the pile. Well, one day she walks in there. She's doing her normal thing. She throws the clothes on the bed. All of a sudden, she heard three powerful words from the Lord. All right. So, so life story of her mother, she had just carelessly thrown laundry onto her bed, and now she receives a direct revelation from God. Mm-hmm. All right, which is why she's teaching this as if it's a doctrine, but uh, God wasn't the one talking there. See for this. He said, finish your laundry. <laughs> My mom was like, what was that? <laughs> Who was that? Surely that couldn't be the Lord. Well, this- no, it wasn't the Lord. And stop calling him Shirley. He heard it again so softly just in her spirit. Finish your laundry. Then she heard this phrase just going over and over on the inside. And it was this. Finish what you start and take care of what you've got. And then I'll bless you with better. Uh-huh. So... In order to get a promotion or blessing for better from God, you've got to, well, fold up your laundry, wash your dishes, you know, fold your clothes and all this kind of stuff. In other words, promotions from God are earned by your works, which kind of begs the question, um, how is it that there are people who are literal hoarders. I mean, you know, if you walk into their house, I mean, it's it's a disaster area, and um, and they have so much, and they aren't stretched for being able to pay bills and stuff like that. How come God isn't telling them to you know fold their laundry and put stuff away, you know, and maybe get rid of a lot of the things that they're hoarding? Hmm. How is it that they got these promotions and yet they're not really obsessive compulsive when it comes to like, you know, 
folding their socks and color coordinating them in the drawers and things. In other words, God was teaching her a lesson that I like to call the laundry basket law of success. Now I'll explain. The laundry basket law of success. Okay. Where can we find the laundry basket law of success in the scriptures? Answer, you can't. You'll have to twist biblical texts in order to make it look like it fits the laundry basket law of success. In other words, God was teaching my mom based on the scripture in Matthew 25 that says, you've been faithful with a few things, I'll put you in charge of many things. Mm-hmm. Matthew 25, verse 21. You've been faithful with a few things, so I will put you in charge of many things. Now, I'm going to note, if you know your Bible, then Matthew chapter 25 If you're familiar with that portion of Scripture, you should recognize that that is part of a portion of Scripture known as the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25 are primarily, but not exclusively, but primarily about the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And Matthew 25, 21 is is not something that is refer is in reference to things going on today it's actually regarding the day of judgment let me explain there's a parable that Jesus uh gives it's the parable of the talents let me read it starting at Matthew 25:14 here's what it says for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and trusted to them his property To one he gave five talents, another two, another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. Now, real quick, we need to clear this up. For modern-day English speakers, you hear the word talent, and you think that this fellow gave them abilities like how to shoot a basketball, good management skills, and stuff like that. That's not the type of talent that's referred to here. It would be better if we just transliterated the Greek and left it as talanton or translated talent as a uh, large sum of money, something to that effect, so that you don't think that this is about your ability to shoot a basketball. But the idea here is, is that this is a parable, and the details of the parable are pointing to a spiritual reality. And the idea here is is that the person going away is Christ, and he has given gifts to different people, and and he's basically saying, do business in my name with my property, with my things, with my gifts. He didn't give them exactly specific details on what to do, but what's interesting is, is that this parable must be understood properly in light of everybody's relationship with the master who had gone away. If you believe he is a fine fellow and you trust him and you like him and you're going to go and do the best you can for this fellow who's a king, right? And if you dislike him and you hate him and you think he has bad intentions, that's what happens with the guy, the fellow with the one talent. So we continue. So the, he who had received the five talents went at once, traded with them. He made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And this is referring, no joke, to the day of judgment. These are 
judgment day parables. So he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master, and you're going to note, he was very excited. He loves the master. He was really thrilled to share this information with him. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Mm -hmm. Okay, enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22, he he who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. And notice he's got a great relationship with the master. He said, I've made two talents more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who had also received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you would be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, gather where I scatter no seed. Well, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest." So you can note, he doesn't trust the master, he thinks ill of the master, and this, he has no faith in the master, and ultimately that's the issue. Mm -hmm. So they, um, so then the one, uh, so then take the talent from him, give it to the one who has ten talents, for everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast that worthless servant into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So uh, Terry Savelle Foy has quoted Matthew twenty five twenty one. You have been faithful over a little, I'll set you over much, and misapplied this to some kind of principle now that if God is, is satisfied with how well you're doing your laundry and folding your clothes, then you will position yourself for blessing and promotion and stuff. No, that's not what that text is teaching at all. So she's twisted Matthew twenty five twenty one. The New American Standard says it this way. Because you were loyal with small things like the laundry, I'll let you care for much greater things like a global ministry. No. <laughs> uh, that's really not what that parable is talking about. See, God was teaching my mom that she had not finished her laundry just because the clothes and the towels were thrown on a bed and just stayed there until time to pull something out of the pile and put it on. In other words, that wasn't caring for small things. That wasn't finishing what she started. Now, Now, I want to make something very clear. I am not saying that we should not be good stewards of the gifts and resources that God has put into our care. If you miss manage your resources or you do not care for them, then you're going to end up having to spend money that you don't have, and that is a mismanagement of the resources that God has given you for the care of your body and things like that. We continue. As basic as this sound, God began to teach her things like wash the clothes, dry them, fold them, put them away. He began to teach her to finish what she started. In other words, You know, she was learning things like to iron those old maternity dresses, to hang them up, to wear them with dignity, and to thank God for them. She was learning to fold the towels, to put them away in the bathroom cabinet until time to wrap up up in them. Then the Lord began to teach her things. And because she did that, her, her and her husband now have a global ministry. Oh, man. 
with the dishes that she hadn't finished the the dishes simply because they were left in the dishwasher until time to pull them out and eat off of them again. They were finished once they were dried, put in the cabinet where they belong. So God was teaching her to establish these standards of excellence with the little she had so he could bless her with something greater. Mm-hmm. The laundry basket law of success, which is not one of the Ten Commandments. You can talk about the importance of stewarding God's gifts, but this is not about stewarding God's gifts. Ultimately, Terry Savelle Foy is teaching that if you do your laundry well enough, then God will be pleased enough to give you an international ministry the way he's given her and her parents an international ministry. You see, this is no longer about good works and stewarding the gifts that God has given us. This is about earning benefits from God so that you can be prosperous and healthy and wealthy and stuff. Yeah, I think you get the idea. All right, moving along, um, we've got a um, an update from one of my least favorite people that we check in with, Real Talk Kim. So uh, let's do this. I didn't know you was going to start out with... Looking for a city built above. Looking for a city where we'll never die. Where the saint in millions never say goodbye. There we'll meet our Savior and our love was true. Come, our Holy Spirit. Okay, so we're heading over to the YouTube channel of Real Talk. Kim, the name of the message is Exposing the Counterfeits, and the weird part was she wasn't speaking ironically. Here we go. On a trajectory ship in the midst of us standing right here. Lord, we say, have your way. Come on, tell him. Tell him, say, God, have your way. Come on, tell him, have your way. I can't hear you. Come on, come on, come on. Y'all better have a seat with your pretty selves. Man, it is so good to be back with my favorite family of choice. Man, I'm missing y'all. I don't know how this happened where I am gone for three weeks in a row because that never happens. Y'all know the most I like to be gone is once a month. And it's got to be like a really great place for me to be gone more than that. And I've been gone, and I got one more Sunday, then I'm going to be back. But, man, I miss y'all, and I watch the replay, and I, I, I hate it because I'm missing. It's y'all like part of my family. You know what I mean? Like part of my DNA. So on Wednesday nights, I'm so excited that I get to do this with you tonight. We're going to talk about, y'all ready for this? We're going to talk about exposing the counterfeits. Whew. Wow. 
exposing the counterfeits. Now, a little bit of a note here. Um, God's word forbids her from doing what she's doing. Yeah, let me let me explain. I keep pointing that out. Um, in First uh, Corinthians chapter fourteen, we hear these words from the Apostle Paul, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And here's what it says, starting partway through verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints. Mm-hmm. This was a universal um, <clears throat> universal commandment from the Lord that applied to every church, not just the church in Corinth. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the Torah also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Verse 37, well, I'll read 36 and 37, and to end this off, or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it reached? So if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 14, clear, explicit prohibition for women to preach and exercise authority in churches, a cross-reference to that, by the way, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so here we have a woman preaching a sermon and talking about exposing counterfeits. Mm Mm-hmm. Detaching from what destroys you and discerning who sent them. Right. So that would mean we need to detach from you, Real Talk, Kim, and discern that you were not sent by God to be a pastor or a preacher in Christ's church. When to let friends go. When... I got chills on that one. What, 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 what? When, when to know when a relationship is over. Right, like the relationship that these people have with you as their pastor, right? That should be over because you're a counterfeit. Now, I ain't talking about married people. I'm not giving you a free pass. <laughs> Y'all like, yeah, boom, shakalaka. I get to leave that. No, I ain't talking about marriages. Marriages just gives you a chance to fix it. You see what I'm saying? You got a covenant. This is, this is just, this is, this is for relationships and friendships. People that we're holding on to that are polluting us. People that are, I say sometimes you got to fumigate. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I would advise the people there at that church to do that immediately. Fumigate quick as soon as possible. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Meyer Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Meyer Christian. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from Mark Beeson and Jensen Franklin. Stay tuned, don't want to miss them. We will be right back. No visions are cast here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. (laughs) 
Theater presents Church Day Select. Gentlemen, we have two basic suggestions for the design of this megachurch, and I thought it best that the architects themselves came in to explain the advantages of both designs. That must be the first architect now. Ah, yes, this is Mr. Wapcat of Finkel, Dewey, and Grime. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, yes, the design I've devised for the new worship center has all the aesthetic beauty of the Crystal Cathedral with all the advantages of modern technology. Um, the congregants step through these wide double doors here are carried along the corridor on a conveyor belt in extreme comfort past the youth worship basement, the adult worship rock and roll arena, the monster truck smashing train, and into the Sarlacc pit. The last 20 feet of the corridor are heavily soundproofed. The congregants slide down these chutes here into the open mouth. Excuse me. Hmm? Did you say Sarlacc Pit? Um, Sarlacc Pit, yes. Uh, are, are you proposing to digest our congregants over a thousand years? Does that not fit in with your plans? No, it does not. We wanted a simple megachurch, not a death trap. Ah, I see. I hadn't correctly divined your attitude towards the congregants. Uh-huh. You see, I mainly design occultist cathedrals. Yes, pity. Mind you, this is a real butte, not your average satanic mosque with people's beating hearts being ripped out of their chest or burning sulfur pits and convincing passers-by with burnt eyebrows. I mean... My life has been building up to this. Yes, and well done. But we did want a mega church and not a temple of doom. Well, may I ask you to reconsider? I mean, you've no idea how modern and relevant this place can be. Think, think of the tourist trip. No, no, it's not going to work for us. By the way, um, why the Sarlacc pit? Well, it's a pretty standard feature in all of my projects. You see, if you're going to preach heresy, you might as well not even bother waiting. Just send them to the afterlife quickly, is what I've always said. You mean heaven? <laughs> You are so funny. Thank you. You may leave now. Hypocritical puss buckets. My apologies, gentlemen. The next architect is Miss Parsons of Cromwell and Hague. Good afternoon, gentlemen. As you may notice from my scale model, the design takes us back to our ancestral Christian roots. Observe the white bell tower, the baptismal font, the organ at the back of the Stop. church, and... I beg your pardon? You've completely missed the whole point of the megachurch. Uh, you've made something irrelevant. How is the seeker-driven church going to attract prospective customers? I mean, uh, congregants. Isn't church about worshiping Jesus Christ and hearing and learning his word? Jesus has got nothing to do with this. We need tithers, not decrepit old people clinging to their cracked leather Bibles and going on and on about how the music's too loud and how the preacher doesn't read enough scripture, complaining about the coffee shop in the main foyer and how they charge too much for a double chocolate spring hazelnut latte. But they still pay the fourteen ninety nine for the latte because the water in the drinking fountain tastes like arsenic. <clears throat> That's enough, Miss Parsons. The answer is no. Very well, gentlemen. Have a good day. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible 
is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture. I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Uh. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that, uh, well, the laundry law of success and promotion isn't biblical. Because it's not. Uh, Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. That's right. There are three of them. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Uh, when you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. That's right. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew, great way to support us. If you would like to become a patron on Patreon, click the Become a Patron button. Or if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. Or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly, honestly cannot do what we are doing here Without it. All right, we're going to do another purpose driven update. And if you're not familiar with Granger Community Church, this is a church where years and years and years ago we would regularly do updates regarding them. Um, However, as they've kind of changed things up, they have ceased to be a flagship 
purpose-driven church, and uh, but they are still considered one of the more successful ones. But let's do this. I don't know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose. Gotta find out, don't wanna wait, got to make sure that my life will be great. Gotta find my purpose before it's too late. All right, so we're heading over to Granger Community Church, and if you've ever wondered why do purpose-driven churches do the things that they do, answer. I'm going to give you a biblical answer. I'm going to say it first. You're probably not going to believe me, but I'll prove it as we go. The the correct biblical answer is they deny that human beings are born dead in trespasses and sins. You're sitting there going, what? That's why they put on the circus every Sunday and all the stuff that they do. Yes, that's actually the reason why. But um, let me let Mark Beeson do a little bit of explaining first. Here is Mark Beeson uh, introducing uh, the fellow who will be giving the message uh, this past Sunday, uh, Jake Mulder. But here's Mark Beeson, and along the way he's going to explain something very insightful about how, how... This uh, church was established. Here we go. Welcome to Granger Community Church. My name is Mark Beeson, and I get to be one of the pastors here. And I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I get to be here. We're at two sites right now, plus homes all across the world. How curious in this uh, day and age when people can watch the service online from anywhere and everywhere. So I'm going to look in the camera. Which camera? I'll look in this camera. Welcome! We're so glad you're here. 32 years ago, we started Granger Community Church, and it was a time when the boomer generation, which is the largest generation. Yeah, the generation that screwed everything up. Yeah, thanks to them, the, our, literally, you know, our, the entire fabric of American society has come unraveled. More people, boomers, than any single generation in this country's history. The boomer generation was having sway on culture. And we started the church 32 years ago. Guess what I am? Not Neanderthal, boomer. I'm a boomer. I'm part of that generation. We started this church 32 years ago with great empathy and, and love for people who didn't know how much God loved them. They didn't. All right. So empathy for people who didn't know how much God loved them. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the reason why pagans don't come to church? You're thinking, okay, I know the answer to this. Answer, are you ready? Because they are pagans. Yeah, let let me explain. I'm going to give you two passages of Scripture from the New Testament that literally explain what unbelieving pagans are like. Ephesians 2 chapter uh, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 great place to go and listen to what the apostle Paul says to the Christians there at the church in Ephesus regarding how they used to be he says this about them and you were listen to the word dead <laughs> uh-huh dead 
in trespasses and sins. And by the way, it's not mostly dead. It's not kind of sort of dead. It's stone cold spiritually dead. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the things of God, incapable of making decisions for God. Mm -hmm. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, important to note here, it's not you that made you a Christian. Mm-hmm. Verse 4 explains, but God. And by the word, by the way, the word God there in the Greek is in the nominative case, which means it is the subject of the verbs that follow in the sentence. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead... God made us alive together with Christ. God is the one who makes you alive, right? And Romans chapter 10 makes it clear. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Now, let me give you another text. Not Ephesians, but Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, also gives us a little bit of a picture of what pagans are like. Are you ready? Uh, uh, Romans 8, 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Yeah. So um, the sinful flesh cannot submit to God's law. It's not capable of doing it. In fact, God is the one who has to raise you from the dead and regenerate you. Becoming a Christian involves being regenerated. And that's God's work, not your work. Dead people don't get out of the grave. On their own, they have to be raised from the grave. And so God raises people through the means of grace. That's, you know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And so you get the idea then. And then just for good measure, if you take a look at Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, in describing all of humanity, says this, So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. We've all already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, listen to this next phrase, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's a picture of all of humanity. At dead in trespasses and sins, nobody seeks for God. Nobody. And it's God who has to raise us from the grave. It's not an act of our will. It is an act of God's will. Whenever anyone is regenerated and raised from the grave and made a Christian, God is the one doing it. Again, pay attention to the middle portion of Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 10, verses 4, 5, 6. All the verbs go with the noun God. God is the one who raised us from the dead, seated us in heavenly places with Christ. God is the one who's done all of these things. And then Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God so that no one may boast. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the reason why seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches do what they do is because they deny the doctrine of original sin. They do not believe that men are dead in trespasses and sins. They believe that they're wounded by sin 
but that they can turn themselves around. And the reason they don't come to church is because Christianity is irrelevant. But the scriptures reveal that the reason why they don't come to church is because they are hostile to God. They are not seeking after him. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. So with that, now, you know, you got the biblical basis of this. Listen to what Mark Beeson talks about as he ruminates over the 30-something year history of Granger Community Church, going back to when they first started things out there. How did he do business? Well, listen to what he did. know how much God loved them. They didn't realize how much they were loved by God. And, and we, yeah, yeah, it was a good start. I know. And, uh, we began with listening. I, I asked. He calls it listening. They, according, you know, this, this is all basic purpose-driven methodology. It's not quite listening. It's going out and doing a sociological survey. That's what they did there. Uh, do you participate in the faith community? All right, let me back this up just a smidge. Listen again. And, and we, yeah, yeah, it was a good start. I know. And, uh. We began with listening. I, I asked people, uh, do you participate in the faith community anywhere? Do you go to church anywhere? And if people said no, I would, I would ask, why? And do you know if you ask why, and then you just stand there mute? But Scripture says the reason why unbelievers don't come to church cause, is because they're hostile to God, dead in trespasses and sins. Mm-hmm. They will tell you why. That's, they'll tell you. I'll tell you why I don't go to church because sermons are boring. And it's- Yeah, you know, sermons where God's word is exegeted. Boring to a person who's dead in trespasses and sins and hostile to God. That's to be expected. It's all irrelevant to my life and on and on. I made a list. I wrote all that stuff down and began to offer a way forward that addressed the issues that had been raised when I listened to people who didn't participate in any faith community at all. Mm -hmm. The issues that were raised by unbelievers. Now, so listen to what I'm saying. All of these so-called seeker churches or attractional churches or purpose-driven churches like Granger Community, they literally have redesigned and organized church according to the so-called felt needs and desires of people who are dead in trespasses and sins. That's why they are entertainment-driven. That's why the messages are the four verses out of context designed to give you life tips and principles on how to make your life better. But I wanted you to hear it from Mark Beeson. This was just from this past Sunday. And, you know, it's worth reviewing whenever those guys talk about it out in the open because there's a reason why they do the things they do. But ultimately, it's a theological error because pagans don't come to church because they are dead and hostile to God, dead in trespasses and sins. They don't not come to church because... Sermons are boring. Sermons are boring to everybody who is dead in trespasses and sins and hostile to God. You have literally put the goats in charge of the church 
with the whole seeker-driven methodology, its entire assumptions, and the whole thing is corrupt from beginning to end. The only solution when it comes to purpose-driven churches is to scrap the whole concept. The whole, the, all of the methodology is biblically false. The reason why unbelievers don't come to church is because they hate God. That's the reason why. All right, moving along, we got a money-grubbing televangelist update, so let's do this. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira, now the Deutschmark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money, 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 money. There's nothing like a newly minted money, pound. money, money, money. Everyone must anger for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, 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 you round. All right, so we're heading over to the uh, ministry of Jensen Franklin, a money-grubbing televangelist, and we're going to listen to a portion of his sermon titled, What to Do in Time of Famine. And what to do in time of famine is actually a perfect example of a confusing of a biblical concept known as the proper distinction between law and gospel. And so he's going to actually rightly identify things that are not pleasing to God. Now, he's going to twist some texts along the way, but in doing so, he's going to completely botch and not recognize that the solution when we fall short is to repent and be forgiven, which requires you to not preach God's law without shaving off any of the hard edges, but preach it with all of its hard, sharp edges for the purpose of convicting people of their sin, and he will be describing some things that are truly sins, and that calls for us to repent and to trust in our crucified and risen Savior for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, Buckle up, we're going to do a little bit of work, a little further work in Romans chapter 3, so you can kind of see how Scripture describes this concept. But here's Jensen Franklin to set the topic up. Go to Genesis chapter 26, I'll preach a few minutes. Hallelujah. There was a famine in the land, Besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham and Isaac went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, the Lord appeared to him there and said, do not go down to Egypt, live in the land that I have put you. Verse three, dwell in this land. I will be with you. I will bless you for you and your descendants. I'll give you these lands and I will perform the oath, which I swore to Abraham, your father. Verse six. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land. What land? The land that was in famine. And reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. Verse 13, the man began to prosper, continued prospering until he became very prosperous. It's a good one. 
Well, that was just in his soul. Verse 14, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds, great number of employees. I love this part. And the Philistines envied him, the ungodly. So I want to talk to you about what to do when you get in a famine, when things dry up. When you're going through a tough time, I want to show you something in the scripture. When we talk about famine, uh, we really don't understand in the blessed state that we're in in America what a famine is. I, I survey this group here. I don't see anybody in a famine. Usually there are two things that cause a famine. Usually it's either war or it's weather related. And they were in that kind of famine Swollen bellies, uh, disease, people dying, crops failing, everything. Nobody had food. Nobody had nothing. And God said to Isaac, stay right where you are. Don't go anywhere. Now, this is in contrast. And I want to leave that story. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. I'm going to take you on a little trip to two other stories in the Bible that go right with it. And then we'll end. I want you to see the, the contrast between him obeying God and staying in a place that God said, it's your land. I've given it to you. This is yours. And just because you're in a famine, you don't walk away from it. Just because it's not producing for you right now, you don't quit, pack your bags and go somewhere else that looks better. You stay right where you are. I'm giving you a stay here command. God said to Isaac. Now, technically that's correct. The text in question is Genesis 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. Sojourn in the land of the Philistines. And I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all of these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my, kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes and my laws." So Isaac settled in Gerar when the men of the place asked him about his wife. He said, she's my sister. He lied. You notice that he and Abraham have something in common. Uh, For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. And Abimelech says, What is this that you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac sowed in that land, in the land of Gerar, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich, gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so the Philistines envied him. All right, so 
the Lord appeared to him, gave him a sure and certain promise, and it was it was a promise for the sake of the offspring. Who is the offspring? It's singular, by the way. Jesus. Read the book of Galatians, and you find out that the offspring, singular, uh, that was referred to in these texts going back to Abraham is none other than Jesus Christ himself. So, you know, God spares Isaac for the sake of the Messiah, the offspring, so that we can all be saved. This is a matter of life and death for all of us because Abraham and Isaac are in the direct ancestry line of Jesus of Nazareth. Important stuff there. But what what um, Jensen Franklin is doing here is literally taking the fact that he sowed seed in the land of Gerar during a famine, that somehow this is some kind of weird principle then that informs us how we are supposed to live as Christians. Watch what he does next. I don't want you to do like your father, Abraham. I don't want you to do like Naomi. Naomi got in a famine. We're told about it in the book of Ruth. And the Bible said that she was in the city and in the place, the, the Holy Land. She was in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Now, note, the story of Ruth and Naomi is a long, long centuries after this. Long, 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 long time. (laughs) So Jensen Franklin somehow pulling Ruth and Naomi into this story as a cross-reference, super-de-duper sketchy is the best way I can put it, and an example of missing the point. But it seems like there's something wrong with that, that the house of bread would be breadless. And she was without bread and there was a famine in Bethlehem. And she and her husband and her two sons and their wives left Bethlehem, the house of bread. And they went to Moab, which was a city, listen to this, 25 miles away. Now, I realize they didn't have transportation like us, but that's not very far. And it's a very logical thing that you're in famine and people are starving to death and, 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 and there's no food and everybody's going. All the other families have gone. So, so Naomi, why don't you and your husband and your sons and their wives pack your bags and go to Moab? And that's exactly what they did. They went to Moab, but when they got there, they found out and heard that there was bread in Bethlehem. See, when, when you're in Bethlehem... Yeah, they sojourned there for a, a wee bit of time. It's not like things turned around as soon as they got into Moab. Yeah, that's a, you know, you're a twisting of the story of Ruth. Bethlehem, God's house, and, there's, and it's breadless, and there will be famines. I don't care... How blessed and called you are to a place, a business, a marriage, a a job, a call. So notice he's now allegorizing famines. And there's where this really has come off the tracks. Calling. There are times when you go through leanness. There's times when you go through hardship. There's times when you go through battles and you have to persevere. You have to, it's hard, it's tough. We, we are so quick to jump ship and hop over somewhere else that looks so much better that we don't ever stay where God told us to stay. And so in that land, in stay where God told us to stay and so into that land. So are you saying that God is telling me I can never move from North Dakota? <laughs> I'm not planning on leaving anytime soon, but this, what exactly are you talking about here? I feel like you're really twisting God's word up. 
And the reason I feel that way is because he is. In that marriage, in that business, in that place, we're always looking for something way out there that's easy and go get it quick, get rich quick. And we don't understand that all the things that you need, God has given you if you'll sow into that land. What? God has given me stuff if I'll sow into that land. Yeah, now the uh, the metaphor is breaking down. And the Bible said when they went to Moab, her husband died, her two sons died. And she says, I'm, I'm bitter and just let me die. But her daughter-in-law, the only one left that stayed with her, the other one left, said, there's bread in Bethlehem. Let's go back. But notice that in famine, they left and they traded three funerals for one famine. Sometimes it's better to stay in the house. My, my worst day in the house of God is better than my best day in the world. And you know what? I may be going through things and sometimes we feel like that. Listen to me, young people. Sometimes it'll look like everything out there in Moab is fun and there's no shortage of, of fun and music and party and, and all kinds of stuff going out there. And here I am in the house of God. When I first got saved, it was exciting, but now things are dried up and no big miracles. I'm just, what do you do? You take the word of God in that land, sow it into your life, sow it into your life, sow the dreams of God in, get in services like this let him so and so the dreams of god what does that mean because it sounds like he's describing things that are actually sins stuff that well behaviors that are strictly forbidden by god's word and are clearly commanded against in like the 10 commandments Hmm. Sounds like he's describing sin without describing sin. And if you'll stay in God's house, even when it's breadless, there will come a time when it'll come back. Listen to this, a hundredfold. You can't get the hundredfold unless you make it through a famine. In that land, that was... You can't make a hundredfold unless you make it through a famine in that land. I have no idea what that means. No clue whatsoever. Famine is the land that brought forth a hundredfold. I think we need to understand what the scripture says in Proverbs 17 and 24. Wisdom is before the eyes of him who has understanding. But to the eyes of a fool, they're on the ends of the earth. Listen to that scripture. It says that wisdom is before the eyes of him who has understanding. Another way of saying that is when you're a wise person, you begin to appreciate the people that you have around you. You begin to appreciate the things that you have around you. But the fool, his eyes are upon the ends of the earth. If I had that, if I could go over there, if I, could, if I was in L.A., if I was in Chicago, if I could go and they never see what they have. If I is it wrong for somebody to want to move to Los Angeles or Chicago? W what if they receive a, a legitimate job offer? You can note here, this is now getting really foggy, very confusing. And there's a reason for it, but let's let him spin this out just a little bit more. 
If I had that man and not this man, if I had that girl and not this girl, if I had that woman, she doesn't have the problems that this woman has. You are stupid. They all have problems. You go- He's describing adultery. The commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery. So what he's done is he's taken Genesis 26, Isaac sowed in a land during a famine, and what he's done is saying, okay, so you're in a marriage and things are tough, that equals a famine, um, <laughs> and the solution is to sow into that land your difficult marriage rather than commit adultery. And he's really come up with a very bizarre, circuitous route, if you would, to come to that conclusion. But here's the thing. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to preach God's law in order to silence people and show them their sin. Let me explain. Let me go back to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, verse 9. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, that's everybody, Jews, Greeks, you know, Norwegians, Americans, Aussies, it doesn't matter. All are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a description of all of us born dead in trespasses and sins. Now, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified, that means to be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, God's law has a purpose, and so many people are squeamish about actually preaching it. Its primary but not exclusive, primary but not exclusive purpose is to convict us of our sin, to show us that we have fallen woefully short, we have incurred and deserved the wrath of God against our sins, and that there's nothing that we can do to remedy the situation. From there, then, the gospel can enter in. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God This is God's righteousness that's given to us as a gift. It has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what then becomes of our boasting? Yeah, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, declared righteous by faith, apart from works of the law. Uh Uh-huh. 
So there you got the kind of the basic idea. God's law has a purpose, to convict us of our sin. Now, it also shows Christians what a good work is. Primary use, though, of the law is to convict us of our sins, show us our need for a Savior, which then we can preach Christ and him crucified for our sins, and call people, as Christ has said, to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins in him, in Christ. But what Jensen Franklin is doing in this sermon is really a mess because he's totally messing up I, you know, Genesis 26, which has nothing to do with what he's talking about. There's no principle here about sowing into a land during a famine. This is not some hard and fast rule that we're all supposed to do. But he's allegorized the famine to talk about, well, a difficult marriage. And as if not sowing into your marriage, you know, is is a bad thing because, you know, Genesis 26. No, um, <laughs> Exodus 20 says... You shall not commit adultery. Uh huh. And Jesus says, even looking at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So, but he's not preaching that. He's cutting off all the hard edges of the law and in the process, not giving a clear example of how they've fallen short, incurred the wrath of God, convicted them of their sins, so that they can hear the gospel and what Christ has done for them. Call them to repent and to be forgiven. That's all missing here. You're just going to trade out problems. So into that land. So into that marriage. So into that. Why don't, why don't you, instead of having an affair, having an affair with your wife and go off on a weekend, why don't you so into that land when it... Now, here's the sad part. He, this is a guy who, well, he pastors a megachurch. Not just one, but multi-sites across the country. He's got one in Irvine, California. He's got another one on the other side of the country on the East Coast. And with all of the hundreds of thousands of people that his ministry reaches week in and week out, there are people who are listening to him who have committed adultery and have had an affair. They may even be in one right now. And what they're not hearing is that they have sinned and fallen short, and they need to repent. And they need to hear that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that, well, Scripture is very clear. Many Christians were sexually immoral before they were washed, before they were, were forgiven and brought to repentance and faith in Christ. And so there is forgiveness even for sexual immorality, but they need to be confronted with their sin and have Christ and him crucified for their sins and risen on the third day for their justification as the solution to their problem. But here he's just saying, you know, why don't why would you want to have an affair with another woman? You you just need to have an affair with your wife. That's not going to solve the problem there, dude. And we as pastors are not given the freedom to shave off the mess, the parts of the messages that God has given us in his word to preach. Uh, we can't shave those off without incurring, uh, well, God's judgment ourselves. When it's in a famine, it can produce a hundredfold. That can produce divorce and attorneys and all that other stuff. They're all clapping, but he's not actually preaching God's law. 
and he's not preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This is actually quite tragic, but I think you get the idea. But, uh, you know, this is really kind of indicative of part of the problem of uh, today's preaching, is that pastors have no courage, none whatsoever, to actually preach what God's Word says. They find creative ways of shaving off the hard edges to make it, you know, to not offend people while then putting on a brave fun and looking like they're being bold when, in fact, they're not being bold at all. They are being quite cowardly by not preaching the message that we've been given to preach. And the reality is is that because these people are not being confronted with their sins, they're not hearing about Christ, they're not being brought to repentance, and the solution to their sin problem is not just try harder or do something different. The solution to their sin problem is to be forgiven, and that's the one thing they're not being taught about at all. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Fire Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Fire Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to head down to Church Unlimited and listen to just a terrible sermon about March Madness. David and Goliath. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Rich Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture. I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches.
Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. This is a sermon that's going to fall short by not understanding that the scriptures are about Christ. You remember last week we talked about Genesis 22, how you cannot rightly understand it unless you understand the scriptures are about Jesus, and that is a type and shadow event pointing us to, well, the sacrifice of Christ. Same thing with the story of David and Goliath, by the way. Let's do this right, though. Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Church Unlimited, Corpus Christi, Texas. Vision casting leader Bill Cornelius presiding. We will begin this sermon with their video introduction. The name of the sermon series is March Through Madness. And yes, everything is basketball themed because... Well, Bill Cornelius is a vision-casting leader at a purpose-driven church, which also denies, well, the doctrine of original sin, that people are born dead in trespasses and sins. And so in order to make church relevant, he has decided to give pagans what they want. And what do male pagans like in the month of March? Answer, basketball! Ta-da! That's what they like, so that's what he's going to give them. And in the process, you're going to note that despite he the, the fact that he goes overboard to give the pagans what they want as far as popular culture, basically, and, you know, college basketball sports, he's not going to rightly preach the text and not point them to Jesus. This is a huge, huge problem. So let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado... Here is Bill Cornelius, and this is the video introduction to the sermon, March Through Madness, Cinderella Story. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, get on your feet. Put your hands together, because it's time to March Through Madness! And now, your starting lot of senior pastor, hailing from Houston, Texas, standing at six foot two or six foot three if you count the hair. He has a four and a half inch vertical and finally made his first free throw ever last Thursday. Here he is. Make some noise for Pastor Bill, the Serminator Cornelius. How you guys doing? Great to see you guys. Thanks for coming. Hey, let's give it up for the U.S. dunk team. Were those guys amazing or what? Incredible. Yeah, that's right. They had the United States dunk team as part of the pre-sermon entertainment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, pagans don't come to church, according to these guys, because church isn't relevant. So they've made it relevant. But they don't actually preach God's word. That's the weird part. Wow. I pulled my back watching. I was like, yeah, oh, that hurt. Incredible, man. Talk about some talented guys. I'm amazed by that. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for joining us. Hey, you guys like those t-shirts? All right, then put them on, guys. Let's put on our t-shirts, all campuses right now. Yeah, everybody got t-shirts too, man. Wow, man. This is so relevant. 
Will he preach Christ and him crucified for our sins? That's the question. Will he proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Confront them with their sin and their need for a Savior and then placard Jesus and what he has done for them. Mm -hmm. They've pulled out all the stops in order to make their church relevant to people who are dead in trespasses and sins and hostile to God. Put on that T-shirt. Let's do it. Get those T-shirts on. They look great on you. We'll see all the students wearing those to school this week, talking about their church. Everybody get your shirt on right now. Please do that. So we got all kinds of sizes for you. So please grab those. Glad you guys could make it and I hope you enjoy that. And, and uh, your jump man, Jesus, man, you got to have one of those, right? It's all good. Some guy in the back, I like, took his shirt off, put one on. I'm like, whoa, easy there, buddy. It's all good. Put your shirts on though. Thanks so much for being here. Glad you guys have joined us and uh, for this great new series talking about the NCAA tournament, you know, the NCAA tournament is a huge deal. Did you know it's a $900 million business, the NCAA tournament? Did you know that? It is insane the kind of money, the kind of following they have, the kind of TV ratings. It's, it's crazy. Everyone's going to be watching the March to Madness, right? Watching all these teams going one against each other until finally there are only two left playing for the national championship. These college teams are simply amazing. I love watching. I'm sure you do too. Again, thanks for being a part of the series. We have a lot of fun with this series. We're going to be talking basketball all month long and talking God with it all month long too. So please bring your friends, come back and join us, be a part of our entire series because I believe... Did you hear that? He's going to be talking basketball all month long. So come on back. Of course, we'll talk about God too. Yeah, it's an afterthought, clearly. I believe that God has something special to share with you through this. Hey, let's say our mission statement together real quick as a church. What are we here to do? We're here to take as many people to heaven as we can before we die, period. That's what we're all about here at Church Unlimited, so thanks for being a part. Please pull out your notes if you would. Today's message is called Cinderella Story. Every year in March Madness, there are two or three Cinderella stories. You guys probably know what that is. That's when some team seemingly comes out of nowhere that no one's even heard of and beats one of the big boys and does it several times and starts to climb through the brackets and you think, who in the world is this team? Now, if Duke beats you know, uh, OU, that's not a Cinderella story. If Middle Tennessee State beats OU, that's a Cinderella story, right? In other words, like if, if Kansas beats Kentucky, not a Cinderella story. If Stephen F. Austin beats Kentucky, Cinderella story, right? And so it's when you see some team that really you think has no business even being there, all of a sudden they come out of nowhere and do something great. There's, there's several of these kind of stories in the, in the Bible. We're going to be looking at one in just a second. Hey, before I get to that, let me give you a couple jokes here. How about this? How many NCAA players does it take to change a light bulb? Anybody? One. But he gets money, a car, and three credit hours for it. It's crazy how that works. What's the difference between the Dallas Mavericks and the dollar bill, by the way? You can still get four quarters out of the dollar bill. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, what do you call a current Houston Rockets player with a national championship ring, with a world championship ring? What do you call him that? You call him a thief. That's what you call him. That's right. So we're hoping that changes this year, though. We're hoping that this is our year. Hey, guys, thanks again for being a part of this series. So as we look at the Cinderella stories, I want to give you two quick ones, by the way, that we've had in recent years, two that may be familiar to you. One was back in the day in 1986, there was a CAA player of the year named David Robinson. He took the Navy midshipman. Oh, this is going to change my discipleship, man. Bring my sanctification to a whole nother level. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah, notice we haven't started with a biblical text. It's all about bending over backwards to make church relevant to people who are hostile to God. 
and surprised, in the, uh, did a huge surprise and ran through the brackets. The team's first victory came in convincing fashion against Tulsa, 87-68. After that, it was the team shocked the world when they beat the number two seed, Syracuse, 97-85. The midshipmen finally fell just shy of the Final Four in losing to the number one seed, Duke Blue Devils. Or maybe you remember this guy's coming out party. Uh, in, in, in 2008, NCAA tournament proved to be a sort of coming out party for a guy named Stephen Curry. The Davidson guard, who in the world is Davidson, right? The Davidson guard led his squad to victories over Gonzaga, Georgetown, and Wisconsin before narrowly falling to number one Kansas in the Midwest regional finals. So really, you know, what happens is a lot of these players are really not household names yet until the tournament. And the tournament actually gives them an opportunity to become a household name, to, to, to sign a multi-million dollar deal with the NBA, and to do great things after that. And so really, that's what this kind of competition creates. It really creates stars. It really creates great opportunities. And oftentimes, those stars don't come from the big schools. Sometimes they come from some little school out of nowhere. Well, there is the ultimate Cinderella story in the Bible. And if you're going to talk Cinderella story, you got to go to David and Goliath. There is no greater Cinderella story. In fact, in the tournament this year, I promise you, you will hear commentators saying, wow, this team playing that team is like David playing Goliath. They will literally use that phrase because this is the number one Cinderella story in all the Bible when a kid took on a giant and won. And I believe that God wants you to have a Cinderella story in your life as well. So pull out your... Yeah. So now we got a problem. Okay, and that is is that Scripture, Jesus himself, makes it clear the Bible's about him. So if we're to apply a Christ-centered hermeneutic to the story of David and Goliath, we all know how the story goes, right? Well, who is going to be the stand-in for Jesus? Answer, David. Who's the stand-in for the devil? Goliath. Where are you and I in this story? Answer, if you make yourself David, you're going to miss the whole point. I mean, what goes on here is so typologically brilliant, brilliant, that, and as it relates to Christ, that if you make it about yourself, you're going to miss the whole point. This is a type and shadow picture, if you would, of Jesus crushing the head of the serpent, literally cutting off the head of Goliath. And doing so, now listen to what I'm going to say here, with five smooth stones. Those five smooth stones, I want you to think about the wounds of Christ. He's got one wound in his right hand, one wound in his left hand, one wound on his left foot, one wound on his right foot, and a spear right through his chest, the five wounds of Christ. Uh Uh-huh. So the idea here is is that make this about Jesus, and you can see, because David, at this point, the scarlet thread of the lineage of the Messiah has come to David and no further. He has no children. So Jesus is the one who takes the field. And God saving David, in fact, giving victory to David, he does so on behalf of Christ because Christ is the one who's going to be born as the great, 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 great grandson of David. Had David perished that day, none of us would have ever been saved. Christ wouldn't have been born. Christ would not have bled and died for our sins. And we'd all still be dead in trespasses and sins and looking forward to an eternity in hell. This is all about Jesus. You make it about yourself, you miss the whole point. 
your notes. I want to give you some things to write down. I believe that God has some great things for you today. And so let's jump right in. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, by the way, it, it unpacks the story. But before I get to that, let me give you a little background. David was the youngest of all his brothers. So here's what happened. Uh, Jesse, his dad, was out working one day. And all of a sudden, he sees a caravan of camels pull up. This would be the equivalent of you seeing a bunch of black SUVs all pull up, lined up together. You'd be like, okay, someone important is here. I don't know who this is, right? But it's a big deal. So they all pull up. And Jesse's like, who is coming to my house, right? And all of a sudden, Samuel gets out, the prophet. He's a big deal in Israel. He walks up and says, I'm here to see your boys. One of your children, God has told me, is going to be the next king of Israel. And he's like, you got to be kidding me. He says, please line them up. So he goes and gets all his boys. He said, please give me a moment. He goes and gets all his boys to shower up, get cleaned up, and come over, come over here and line up in, in, in order of birth. They all get lined up. And he says, okay, go ahead, pick the next king. So he goes one by one through them. Here's the bad part about the story. David wasn't included in that list. He didn't even invite David to the party. Not only did he not think David was going to be the next king, he didn't even bother letting him come see who one of his brothers become the next king. So he didn't get invited. You talk about rejection? Really, dad? Like you just leave me out to watch sheep? With all the hired hands, when I'm your son, you let me come into this. And so oftentimes I've seen that when God does something great through someone, he lets them go through an early rejection at a young age. This is absurd. Totally absurd. So have you experienced rejection at a young age? Oh, wow, man, you're going to be important like King David was. That's not what this text is about. Maybe that's you. Maybe you thought it was meant to stop you, but really it's meant to wake you up to recognize there's something bigger than life than fitting in with your bros. That God has a plan for you. Uh, so it's all about discovering your, your purpose, dream, destiny thingy. Notice he's making you David. No, no, you're not. In your stones miss. Jesus's didn't. You have to make this a type and shadow about what Christ is going to do for us on the cross. Otherwise, you miss the whole point. So David's out in the field. Solomon goes one by one through them. First of all, Jesse's shocked. All the brothers are shocked when they didn't choose the oldest. Normally, you always choose the firstborn in Jewish. Uh, that's just how it works in Jewish culture. So they're like, wow, I can't believe him pick him. They go on the next one. He's like, no, this isn't him. Goes to the next one. No, this isn't him. Finally, he says, do you have any other sons? He says, well, I have one. He's out watching sheep. He goes, well, bring him in. We won't eat until, we bring, until I meet him. He comes in as soon as Samuel sets his eyes on David. He says, this is the one. You are the one. And he breaks out some oil. This is the way they did it back then. And they poured the oil over him, anointed him with oil and said, you will be the next king. So what happened next, right? It must have been so awesome. I'm sure they had like Israeli people magazine there getting interviews. They got his own TV show, right? All this kind of stuff. No, no, go back and watch your sheep again. Sometimes God reveals things to you way before you get to see them happen. You're not David. David's life is not a pattern that God uses over and over again for us. Oh, my goodness. Totally missing the whole point. This is what we call narcissistic eisegesis. Narcissism is a self-love. Eisegesis is the, different, is the opposite of exegesis. Exegesis, ex, means to read out what's in the biblical text, Eisegesis, uh, the Greek word into, means to read something into the biblical text that's not there. So shorten the phrase and you have narsegesis, and this is a self-love twisting of Scripture to miss the whole point. Notice he really boneheadedly, and I have to say it that way, thinks the Scriptures are about you, are about me. No, Jesus makes it clear in John 5 and in Luke 24 
that the scriptures are about him, not you. Him and what he is doing for you or will do for you, has done for you. It's not about you. If you want to put yourself into the story of David and Goliath, you are part of the army of Israel on the sideline, shaking in your sandals every time Goliath comes out and defies the armies of Israel, too stricken by fear and totally enslaved to fear to do anything, incapable of saving yourself from Goliath. Put yourself there, and now you've got the right idea. So here he is watching sheep. You ever felt like you're at a job way below what you feel called to do? You ever felt that way? That was David. He's watching sheep when he's supposed to be the next king. Now, fast forward the story a little bit. All of his older brothers go off to war. He's still too young to do that. So he's thinking, I'm supposed to be the next king. Shouldn't I be at war? Shouldn't Because all kings in their day were great generals, former great Yeah, no text says that about David, by the way. Generals in the military, that's who becomes king normally. And so why am I not in battle? No, David, you're too young. You stay here and watch the sheep. So he's watching the smelly sheep while his brothers go off to become heroes in the war. His dad comes to him and says, hey, uh, David, I want you to go check on our brothers, see how they're doing at war. And so here you're going to pack some food. That's the excuse basically to take it to him and then check on them. So he takes the food to the brothers. He gets there. He hands the food over to someone and realizes all the soldiers are out at the battlefield. So he's, you know, like most kids, he's like, I want to see the action, right? So he puts it all down. He runs the battlefield just to see what's going on. When he gets up there, what they've chosen to do is called single combat. Single combat means instead of both our armies fighting, you choose your best guy. We'll choose our best guy and they'll fight each other. The problem was their best guy was Goliath. And Goliath, like when he walked out, it looked like Shaquille O'Neal's older, bigger brother. I was like, are you kidding me? This is insane. This guy is massive, right? So they're freaking out. No one wants to fight him. And so he, he's taunting them day after day. Come on, come on, you big blankety blanks. And he's just cussing them, yelling at them. You know, you think your God's so great. Our God's better than your God. Are you too busy to actually read the text, Bill? Is there somewhere you need to be this morning? Why don't you actually read God's word so they can hear it? You see, God's word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. So you would do well to read and exegete the text so that people can hear it themselves. And God the Holy Spirit works through his word. But notice over and again, it's guys like this. They don't even crack a Bible open. They just think that their Cliff Notes summary is good enough because they like to make the story a little bit more entertaining than it really is. Because, you know, pagans who are dead in trespasses and sins and hostile to God, they think the Bible's boring. So Bill is helping God's word out by not reading it. God and Israel is this and that, and he's just laying it on them. And so, and they're all just cowering and hiding. David walks up and sees this. He's like, who's the big guy yelling at us? Why is he going to go fight him? They're like, look at him. Look how big he is. He's like, someone needs to take, take care of this. And David is angry. He's like, are you kidding me? Everyone's hiding. And so here are all these guys trained in battle, trained in war, trained in how to kill, and they're all hiding behind bushes. Kind of reminds me of a couple weeks ago when someone was trained to handle a shooter, yet they decided to stay and hide behind a car. It's frustrating, isn't it? They're like, yeah, you know, people die when you do that. Someone needs to take care of this problem, right? And so basically, all these guys are hiding out. David shows up. 
He says, well, well, what's the deal? And they said, well, the king said, anyone who, this guy just mouthing off, one of the army guys, said, oh, hey, what's your name? Oh, I'm David. Why are you here? You don't have clothes on? What's the deal? And he says, oh, yeah, I don't have all the gear. I'm not in the army, but my brothers are. And he's like, oh, okay, well, what's going on? He says, well, this guy, Goliath, has been taunting us for the last month. And he says, for a month? He's like, yeah. And he says, uh, yeah, he keeps telling us he's going to kill us and this and that. And he's just taunting us, but no one will fight him. He says, no one will? He says, yeah, no one will fight. It got so bad, the king upped the ante and said, anyone who will fight him gets to marry his daughter. He's like, what? <laughs> Which daughter? Like the good looking one or the one with the good personality? Which one are we talking about? <laughs> I mean, you want to clarify stuff, you know, still a guy. And so he says, oh, the good looking one. He's like, oh, nice. He goes, anything else? He goes, oh yeah, they don't have to pay taxes for the rest of their life. I mean, I don't know what you, but I, that's worth it to me right there. I'll be, I'll risk my life for that. That's, that's awesome. He's not reading the text, and no, Jesus, uh, not Jesus, but David didn't say, I'll, you know, oh, good, it's the good-looking one. He did not say that. And so he's like, wow, he seriously? He goes, yeah, so David's thinking, I'm anointed to be the next king, and so kings go to battle. This is an opportunity for me. Uh, you won't find that internal dialogue from David anywhere in the written scriptures. Mm-hmm. Bill Cornelius literally added that. But remember this, all opportunities always present themselves as intimidating problems. It's a huge opportunity for him. So what does he do? He goes before the king, and this is what he says. He says, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And so basically, by the way, Philistines modern name Palestine. I don't know if you knew that or not, but basically the, the Philistines land ended at Gaza. It's the Gaza Strip. And guess what? Philistines still hate Israel. That hasn't changed, has it? Okay, so we can even see this in history now. But what does the first thing tell us? Number one, if you want to be a Cinderella story, you got to be willing to play an opponent larger and better than you. What if I don't want to be a Cinderella story? Am I sinning? R- really, the whole the whole point of David and Goliath is giving you advice on a, a pattern to follow if you want to be a Cinderella story. Oh my goodness! So you're going to note. The whole purpose-driven movement is like this. They gut church of any real substance, make it entertaining for people who are dead in trespasses and sins, and then when it comes time to opening the Bible, they will claim that they're teaching the timeless truths of Christianity, but they aren't, and they don't. Bill Cornelius, perfect example of that utterly botching God's word here and narcissistically twisting it into somehow the story of David and Goliath is giving you a pattern to follow on how you two can be a Cinderella story the way David was. Oh, give me a break. Would you write that down? You have to be willing to play an opponent larger and better than you. Speaking of larger and better, you know, there's some, some players in the NBA that were incredibly small. There's a guy named Spud Webb in the eighties. He was five foot seven. And he played in the NBA. In fact, he actually won the dunk contest. And he was five foot seven. There was also another guy named Muggsy Bogues. Maybe you heard of him. He was five foot three. Five foot three. Played in the NBA for 14 years. Apparently, you can play with giants. Because he did. And so David knew God was calling him to go and fight this battle. Look at, look at that for this next. And, and first Samuel 17. So David goes and tells Saul, the, the king, I'll, I'll fight him. And look what Saul says. Saul replied, you're not able to go out and against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. He's like, look at the dude. You can't fight him, David. Look, you're kind of small. No offense, but look at Goliath. He's gigantic. He's been on varsity since first grade. He's had a full beard since fourth grade. 
If he wants a beer, he just gets mad, goes, and just pops out. This guy is a man's man, you know? And you, like, barely have a fuzzy lip. There's no way you're going to go fight this guy, right? And he says, no, 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 I, I can do this, right? So, so basically, the king doesn't believe David can do it. Then when David gets out to the battlefield, look what Goliath says about him. He says this, he looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, and he despised him. He's like, are you kidding me? You sent me a boy? You want me to fight a little kid? And so he's angry that David's not bigger. And, you know, he's thinking he's going to fight a big guy like him, you know? And he's like, no, we thought it was going to be Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan. But no, it's Andre the Giant and, you know, someone very small. It's like, this is, this is, this is not a, a fair battle. You know, it's like, I don't understand. Andre the Giant and Kevin Hart. This is really going to be awkward. I don't know <laughs> what's going to happen here. So basically, it, it doesn't seem to match up. But, but God is in this. And so let me tell you one of the greatest gifts that you can ever have. And this is one of the greatest gifts that are given to the, that's going to be given to teams this year that become Cinderella Stories. And this, believe it or not, is a gift. It's going to seem like an insult, but it's not. It's really a gift from God. Here it is. Number two, see being underestimated as a gift. This is just so painful. See being underestimated as a gift. Oy. When people underestimate you, that gives you an opportunity. Because guess what's going to happen? There's going to be some Duke or Georgetown or UConn or some big team like that that's going to play some small-town Davidson-type team. Uh, that's going to play some Middle Tennessee State-type team. And they're thinking, I, I got this. And they're already overlooking. They're looking past that team, thinking about the next game they already have, not really giving it, giving it all. They're all at that game. They forgot that all those players got scholarships too. All those players played hard in high school as well. And so they're actually legit athletes. They just may not be legit athletes that got to go play for Georgetown or UConn or whoever, but they're still legit athletes. And so if they're going hard and you're not going hard, you can get beat. And oftentimes this happens. And so when you are underestimated, it's an opportunity. So maybe at work, people are going, oh man, you know, they're not doing much. They're not really gifted. They're not going to make much of a difference. If, If you feel belittled at work, if you feel belittled at home, if you feel belittled at school, if you feel like no one takes you serious, do you understand the opportunity that is for you? That you could just begin to go hard, begin to apply uh, work ethic and really do, do your best and people are going to go, whoa, look at you. Because they didn't expect much. So when you gave them much, it shocked them. And so you have an opportunity to surprise them. Just like the Cavs did a number of years ago, they were down 3-1. They came back and won it all. Everyone thought they're done. But then they started to climb back. And so when you get underestimated, that's an opportunity. The Rockets in the 90s were underestimated and they won two championships because of that. And so when you're under, sorry, I had to include that. You know, I'm a Houston's boy. So yeah, I had to, had to throw that in. But, but when you're underestimated, it gives an opportunity. This last election cycle, I mean, irregardless of your politics, the entire media thought they knew who was going to win president. And that gave our current president an opportunity because he was totally underestimated. And so in the same way, when you're underestimated, you get an opportunity. And so don't be discouraged by that. That is a blessing. When people don't think you've got much, then you can shock the world when you show them that you do have much. Does that make sense? So I encourage you. It's okay to be underestimated. I remember years ago when we first moved to Corpus Christi, people thought, you know, who's this kid in the school? He's only 25 years old. I would go to pastor meetings and they would say, when's the pastor coming? I was like, oh, I am the pastor. They're like, and that literally to my face, they would say, we thought you were like his intern. We didn't know you were the pastor. They didn't even mean it as an insult. I just looked so young, just like I still look so young today. <laughs> but it was like, man, you're, you're, you're the pastor. You know, it's okay to be underestimated. That's an opportunity for you. Don't worry about that. Just shock the world with what you have to offer and bring your best game. If you'll do that, you can be a Cinderella story. I want to encourage you. You know, it, it, the thing is, David. Yeah, aren't you feeling inspired now? You can go and be a Cinderella story. They're hearing nothing about Jesus. 
their sin, in need of a Savior, the devil being defeated by Christ. None of these things that are actual themes in the story of David and Goliath. What they're, what they're having their heads filled with, total nonsense, along with really interesting you know, trivia about basketball teams and stuff. That ain't going to save them, though. Looked at Goliath, and everyone looked at David like he's so small, and everyone looked at Goliath like, you're so big, we can't win. And David looked at Goliath like, you're so big, I can't miss. It's all in how you look at it, right? Remember when David was out in the wilderness, middle of nowhere, watching sheep while his brother's off at war? He's probably bored. You know, so what do you do when you're bored? Whatever, right? So he's just standing out there, and he's got his little slingshot. He's like, let me just try to hit a couple things. And he keeps missing stuff, you know. But since he's there for hours at a time, eventually he hits a tree. He's like, hey, oh, I actually got that. Let me try that again. Oh, I missed again. Okay, hold on. Let me see if I can. Oh, I got it again. Okay. Oh, I got it a second time. I got... I'm pretty good. Let me back up a little bit, see if I can get this at a distance. So he winds it up. Boom. Next thing you know, instead of running and chasing off one of the foxes trying to come get the sheep, he thought, I'm going to see if I can do it from here. I don't even have to go over there. Bam, hits the fox on the run. Whoa, I just nailed him. So he got good with a slingshot. He got good with a sling and a rock. And so why? He had nothing but time. Let me ask you something. What do you do in your downtime? <sighs> Listen to heresy and Bible twisters like yourself. Are you getting good at Netflix? <laughs> you getting good at Fortnite? Oh, did I just touch a sensitive spot in every home in here? Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm aware of it. The truth is, is that we give our best time to things that won't advance us. Let's begin to give our, our extra time, our downtime, and our best time to things that advance us. And so David said, you know what? I'm going to get good with the sling. You never know when this may come in handy. Well, he had no idea that one day a bear would show up, a lion would show up, and one day a giant would show up. And he had a giant opportunity standing right in front of him. Do you recognize the opportunity in front of you, or are you too intimidated by it? When someone in the office just dumps a problem on you that no one can solve, you say, great, give it to me. Great, No, no, no. But if you solve it, no one solved it. That means you're the leader now. So just solve the problem. This is an opportunity. You got to see it as a great opportunity. I heard about this uh, guy. He joined a 40 over age basketball uh, team, basketball league. And basically what they do is they don't jump for the ball. The ref just roll the ball out. And he wouldn't actually bend over and grab it to get possession. That's how that works. So yeah, that's a joke. It was just kind of went down. It's a bomb. Okay. Moving right along. So first Samuel 17, keep in mind I'm a professional speaker. First Samuel 17. This is interesting. Guess what happens next? Saul says to David, he says, hey, you know what? If you're going to go fight him, wear my gear, right? So he gives him his tunic. He gives him his cloak. He gives him all the stuff. So now he's got all this protective gear on. Look at the scripture. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword and tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. He said, I can't go out in these. He said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. So Saul's walking around. I mean, David's walking around in Saul's outfit. First of all, Saul's taller than him. So it's already too big for him. And he's like, you can go fight in my outfit. And he's like, I, I, can't, I can't fight in this. I can hardly move. I can hardly walk. There's no way I can fight a giant in this. Please, I, I don't need to wear this. And let me tell you something too. You're never going to win your victories in someone else's uniform either. You got to be who you are. What does that even mean? I have no idea. You are. Quit trying to be someone you're not and just be who you are. And what does this also mean? It means that, that David understood that the best chance I got is with my sling and a stone because he knew how to use that. And David had the stones. You know what I'm saying? First Samuel 17 says this. 
Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone stank, sank into his forehead. That's just gross. It went, in, it went through, basically it went into his brain. Sunk into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. And so David's like, I'm taking you down, but I'm just going to take you with a sling and a stone. So he comes out, Goliath is over there. And by the way, remember Goliath despised him? So, you know, most, most soldiers are, got their shield up, right? But he's already been taunting these guys all month. So he's, he's pretty kind. He feels comfortable out here in the battlefield. And I was like, I'm just walking. I own this space. This is mine. And when you get comfortable, you get stupid. And so he's walking around like, this is mine. I got this, you know? And so they said, oh, you know, the Israel now has a warrior that's going to fight you. Where's he at? Seriously? Him? That little boy over there, I'm going to feed him to the dogs. He's nothing, right? And David was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to feed your head to the, you know, and, all of a sudden he was like, whoa, is this guy popping back at me? And he was like cocky. David like popped back and I'm going to feed your body to the birds. He's like, uh, I'm sorry. Are you 10? Are you talking to me right now? Like he can't believe it. But I wonder if in that moment he had that sword and shield up. I wonder if that moment he let that shield down and was like, look at you. And David thought, thank you for dropping that shield. That's just what I needed. Bam! Only two hits. Stone hitting him, him hitting the ground. Victory was his. By the way, let me just point out a couple of things about this way, about the story. You know, Goliath was said to be eight or nine feet tall. Actually, it was the Lord who gave the victory to David. And, uh, you know, people that are that tall, there are people in history that have been that tall. They have what's called a pituitary gland problem. Their pituitary gland keeps keeps growing. See, see, the pituitary gland is what causes your body to grow. And if it doesn't shut off, you begin to become overgrown, basically. And uh, there's whole, I mean, you can Google this if you'd like. It's all kinds of stuff on this. But Tony Robbins has this issue, but it did finally shut off for him. But if it didn't, they would have to go in and have surgery. And, and so that he's giant, if you've ever seen him. And, and uh, other people are that way too. Well, basically, clearly he had, probably had a pituitary gland. The biggest problem with that is not being big. That's a problem for some people. But the biggest problem is that it grows every muscle you have as well. And the muscle, of your, uh, the muscle of your eyeballs, your eyeballs have muscles in them, keep growing and eventually they grow too big and it blinds you. So almost everyone that is this size has horrible eyesight, can hardly see anything. I think it's interesting in scripture when, when Goliath says to David, come over here so I can fight you. I wonder if we'd be really saying, come over here so I can see where the heck you are so I can fight you. So he's like, hey, Come over here so I can fight you. He's a sitting duck. And David's like, I'm not going over there. I'm not stupid. I'm fighting this battle on my terms. And this is just, I mean, you're just a sitting duck. I'm just going after you. And he just began sling. All it took was one rock and he took him down. I want to encourage you. This is one thing we need to learn to do. Number three, go for high percentage shots. Yeah, I'm pretty much in agony at this point. This man is utterly clueless that the scriptures are about Christ. He's entertaining, but he's entertaining these people to hell. Go for high percentage shots. What's a high percentage shot? Doing the shot you're good at is a high percentage shot. What, what are you simply good at? Whatever that is, if you practice it enough, you get a high percentage return on it. Do more of that. Do me a favor right now with a pen in your hand and just write down three or four things you're good at. Just, just, let's not even define it yet. Just, just, if you, you have a hard time doing anything, I'm not good at anything. What do people say you're good at? Maybe you don't feel like you're being arrogant. Then just, what do your friends tell you, man? You're good at this. 
Oh, wow, girl, you're really great at that. Or, oh, man, you're just excellent. Just whatever it is, write those things down. Maybe say, I'm good with people. Uh, I'm good with numbers. I'm good at organizing things. I'm good at uh, making people laugh. I'm good at making people feel comfortable. I'm an includer. I, I'm good at getting up early. And I'm good at tasks. I'm good at, what are you good at? Maybe you're good with your hands. Why don't you instead have them write down the different ways they have transgressed God's law mm-hmm. and have earned the wrath of God and prove definitively that they are in need of the Savior. Mm -hmm. The Savior who defeated our real Goliath, who is the devil for us, so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. Whatever it is you go, would you just write those things out? You guys are looking at me. Please write. You should be writing right now. (laughs) Write some things down that you're good at. Would you do that real quick? Because the key to your Cinderella story is in what you just wrote down. If you can utilize what you're good at, that's your game. You need to run your game, what you're good at, and that is what will build your life and help you have a Cinderella story where you go further than you ever thought you could go. Hey, next week, don't miss. I'm going to be talking about how to double your value and double your results. The Bible talks about a doubling. In fact, there's a lot of scripture on this, and there's a story in particular that talks about a special doubling and how you can double the results that you've been getting. And so don't double the results you've been getting. What is this man talking about? Don't miss next weekend. Maybe you're not interested in money. Maybe that's not a big thing for you, but maybe you do want to double your income. Great. This will work for that too. Maybe that's not an interest to you for me. That's not. So God's word has a principle so that you can double your income. Good night. This man is lying. Not my thing. My thing is I want to double our impact as a church, right? So applying these principles help us to do that. So whatever you want to double, maybe you want to double your happiness, double your influence, double your opportunities. And so be sure to be here next week for that message. Redouble your efforts to get here, right? So hard to find. Don't miss next week. In fact, right now, would you pull out your phones right now? Everyone pull out your phones real quick. And right now, go to Facebook or our Instagram or uh, go to our Twitter. And would you just repost what we posted? We post. Wow. I I don't even have word. What did I just li- compulsory social media posting of your church? Re, you know, reposting of your church's stuff. Oh, man. Posted an advertisement on this right now. We did a post on doubling. Maybe you're into basketball and you want to sign up for three and three and you want to get your friends in it. This is a great opportunity to get people to come to church that wouldn't normally come. Yeah. You know, the, they have three on three basketball stuff there at Church Unlimited. Jesus doesn't really show up at all, and he doesn't know how to rightly handle a biblical text. But man, three-on-three basketball. Talk about a community outreach. Really relevant there, man. We've also posted something about the three-on-three tournament. You can post that if you'd like as well. We appreciate you doing Let's get the word out. Let's be social media evangelists and get the word out. Rather than an evangelist for Jesus Christ... So David gets this great victory. He becomes the Cinderella story of the Bible. What does God say about you and me? He says in Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Can I say that one more time? If God is for us, who can be against us? Whatever stands in your way, if God... Yeah, that Bible verse is taken out of context and that, that that's not a verse that talks about how you can become a great Cinderella story like 
King David. It's for us. Who can be against us? Scripture says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So I'm going to challenge you right now, just like David, to quit thinking small, quit thinking little, quit holding back, quit living without faith, and begin to step up your life and say, I want to do great things because here's the truth I know. You will miss 100% of the shots you never take. You got to start taking shots again. You got to start trying again. You got to step up. You may be saying, Pastor, you don't know. I mean, I, I just went through a big failure. We know I want to point something out. You may have gone through a failure, but you're not a failure. Don't confuse an event with a person. You're not a failure. You've gone through a failure. Listen, failure is not final until you quit attempting. You know, every national championship team has a coach that typically the year or two before almost made it and lost. And then they almost made it and lost again. Almost made it and lost again. And finally, they won it all, Right? And so they just kept attempting and kept attempting and kept attempting. And eventually, if you keep trying and keep going for it, eventually you're going to win. But you got to stay at it. So I want to challenge you that we believe in faith. We believe in the God who loves us. Don't we understand that God has faith in us and he believes in us? He gave us gifts. And God has, has faith in us. I thought Christianity is all about having faith in Christ. This is so absurd. And talents and abilities, and he gave us passion to do certain things, and he gave us a dream, and he gave us a destiny, and it's time... No text talks about God giving us a dream or a destiny. Time for you and I to begin to go for that destiny, because there's a Cinderella story in you waiting to happen, but you've got to come alive again and begin to go for it and play to win. you got to play to win. Would you write that down? God wants you to play to win. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We done. Yeah. So apparently, he's utterly clueless about the fact that, uh, well, that story is actually about Jesus, not you or I. What a mess. So, uh, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pyre Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>